Our scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 4, 1 through 42. It's a long reading. I just noticed something too about the 930 service. The sun is right on me there. <laughs> I kind of feel like a chicken McNugget the whole time. It's like this, this heat light is on me. So. All right, so our text is John 4, 1 through 42. It's a long text. And I, but I, don't want to, I didn't want to cut it up. I wanted to read the entirety of the text because it's a text where Jesus meets a Samaritan. And this is John's account, of course, of that meeting. And I decided that to make it a little bit easier to listen to, I'd ask my wife if she would read the part of the Samaritan woman. Today is our anniversary, 29 years. She's my wife. So... <laughs> so. We got, we got applause. And really, we deserve it because it wasn't as been easy. I get applause. Anyhow, let us ask God for light this morning. Oh, Heavenly Father, you are the God of light, and in you is no darkness at all. Lord, illuminate your word for us. Make it a, a lamp unto our path that we would walk in your ways and that we would give praise to you by our lives and our witness. Help us to see Christ this morning and most of all to follow him. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself, but his disciples who baptized, he left Judea and started back to Galilee. But he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of the ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews did not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is, who is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, you, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You will worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. 
Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman. But no one said, What do you want? Or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Surely no one has brought him something to eat. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Do you not say four months more and then comes the harvest? But I tell you, look around you and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life. So the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for what you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to to God. God. I find this text so fascinating, and I'm drawn to return to it again and again, and so I do it this morning. It's fascinating to me, first of all, because this is the longest recorded conversation of Jesus in the New Testament. This is his longest conversation he has with anyone. And what's amazing about that is that, what's even more fascinating about it is that it is with a Samaritan, one of those who are really a sworn enemy of the Jews, and also a woman, a person with whom rabbis did not speak with in this time, as we can see by the astonishment of the disciples in verse 27. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman. That makes it all the more fascinating. Another thing that makes it fascinating to me is the fact of where it occurs, that it occurs at a well. A well is a place that is so filled with symbolism in the Old Testament, particularly with betrothal symbolism. If you think about the Old Testament, it's where so often one of the patriarchs would go and they would meet and they would find a wife at a well. Isaac met Rebekah at a well. Jacob met his wife Rachel at a well in the middle of the day, very much like in this text that where Jacob is so significant. Moses met Zipporah at a well. And on this day, Jesus met a Samaritan woman at a well. That's fascinating to me. Another reason it's fascinating is because of the whole discussion of her marital status and what that means and what that is about. There's this weird pivot in the text, right, where Jesus asks her about her husband to go get her husband, and then we're told that she's had, you know, five husbands, and that the man she's with right now is not her husband, and oftentimes preachers get really fixated on her sexual history. Often that becomes a big part of how this text is preached, as if the more kind of uh, scandalized that history is, the more important the text is, But, but what if that whole part of her marital history is also operating on a symbolic level. 
right? There's a lot of symbolism in this text. There's water and there's living water. There's things operating on different levels. And some commentators suggest that what really is going on here is that her history is a representation of the history of the Samaritan people themselves. After all, what did the Samaritans do? Why were they hated by the Jews? It was because they intermarried. They looked for love in all the wrong places. They had bad marriages with foreign people that made them unacceptable to the Jews. Could it be that Jesus' reference to her five previous husbands, that serial marriage idea, is a reference to that history of the Samaritan people? Could it be that the one she is living with now is representative of the Romans? That fascinates me. Consider just for a moment here, put up the first of those slides. It seems in this text that the woman is talking about more than just herself and her own history. Can you put up that first uh, slide there this morning? You can see throughout this text that there's this use of the plural. She says, are you greater than our ancestor Jacob? Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. She's speaking about the Samaritan people, not just herself. Go to the next slide. This is Jesus speaking. Of course, you can't tell in the English version, but Jesus uses the plural here as well. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you, that is you plural, you all, you Samaritans will worship the Father. And he uses the plural. And finally, on that last slide, she goes back to using this. When he comes, speaking of the Messiah, the Christ, he will proclaim all things to us. You can take that down. I find that fascinating. Is she speaking about more than just herself? Is this marital history about more than just her own? I'm not usually given to allegorical interpretations of Scripture, but I think something is fascinating is going on in this text. The longest conversation Jesus has with a Samaritan, with a woman, you have this whole well imagery, all of that betrothal imagery, and then you have her marital history. A lot is going on at this well. You see why I want to come back to that well, why I come back to it again and again. And this morning, I want to invite you to come back to that well, to come back one more time to that day when Jesus meets this Samaritan woman at a well in the heat of the day. And I want you to consider afresh what this text is about. And what I'd like to propose to you this morning, what I'd like you to consider is that this is not so much a conversation or a conversion of a woman with a checkered past, that that's really not what the text is about, but rather it is about the glory of our bridegroom Jesus, the inclusive and life-changing power of the gospel, and that the imperative of this text is for us to go and share that good news with other people. This text is fundamentally about going. It's about going. In fact, there are three goings in this text, and that will serve as our outline this morning. The three goings of the text. So let's look at each one of those together this morning. The first one is this. Jesus goes to Samaria. Verses 3 and 4. He left Judea and started back to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. Jesus goes to Samaria. Now isn't that interesting phrasing that the text says, that, that John puts it that way? He had to go through Samaria. Why? Why did he have to go through Samaria? 
It was certainly not geographically required to do so. In fact, Jews went out of their way to avoid going through Samaria. You can pop that map up there for a second. You can see how the Jews would normally travel around Samaria, one of two ways. The one in the red was the most common way, but they would go out of their way not to go through Samaria. But John says Jesus had to go through Samaria. You can take the map down. So why? Well, some people suggest, well, Jesus was in a hurry. He he was under time pressure, and so he had to take the shortcut. He had to go through Samaria. I don't find that very persuasive. That's not how John writes his gospel. When John says Jesus has to do something, it's for a cosmological purpose. It's about the eternal plan of God's salvation. In other words, Jesus had to go through Samaria in order to fulfill God's plan of salvation. It's missional. And so Jesus goes to Samaria. And what does he do when he gets there? He comes to this well in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, and his disciples are off, right? They go to the city to get food for him. And along comes a Samaritan woman, and then he engages in his longest recorded conversation in all the Scriptures. And what's that conversation about? Well, it's about three things. All of them beginning with the letter W. The first topic of that conversation was water, right? He asks her for a drink of water, but then he offers her a drink of living water. He talks to her about this. What is he doing in that moment? Well, I'd argue he's offering himself to her, and I would put it in that idea of the betrothal. He's offering himself as a bridegroom, as a Messiah to the Samaritan people, and he's using that water as a way to speak about that spiritual relationship. Remember those Old Testament weddings at a well. The first thing they talk about is water. The second thing they talk about is the woman. Right? Jesus talks about her marital status and that very odd kind of pivot that he makes in this conversation. Why does he do that? It's kind of confusing. And as I mentioned already, it could be literal. Maybe she had five husbands. Maybe he's speaking about a little literal situation with her. We're not told why that occurred, of course. We, a lot of preachers give conjecture why that has occurred, but we're not told why it occurred, why she had that, serial marriages. But as I mentioned, it also might be operating on a figurative level, a metaphorical level about the Samaritan people's history. Either way, I believe Jesus is offering himself to her as a better match. Your life has been a history, your people's lives have been a history of bad intermarriage, bad relationships, serial marriages, whatever you want to call it. He offers himself as a better match, a better spouse, a bridegroom, and a Messiah for her people. They talked about water, they talked about the woman, and then thirdly, they talk about worship. There's this whole theological dialogue, right, about the focal point, the locale of worship. And for the Samaritans, it was Mount Gerizim. For the Jews, it was in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, well, that's all going away. The real focus is going to be on me. And worship will be in spirit and in truth. There won't be a place of worship. There will be a person of worship. And I am he, and I offer myself to you. 
Again, he offers himself as bridegroom, as Messiah to her and her people. And then the conversation ends in verses 25 and 26. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. What is all that? I think in one way, it's really an offer of marriage. It's a proposal, if you will, a spiritual marriage of Jesus saying, I am your Messiah. I am your bridegroom, not just your individually, but to your people, to the Samaritans. Sandra Schneiders puts it this way. She says, the entire dialogue between Jesus and the woman is the wooing of Samaria to full covenant fidelity in the new Israel by Jesus, the new bridegroom. The first going of this text is when Jesus goes to Samaria and offers himself to this woman at a well, offers himself as Messiah, as bridegroom to her and her people. He goes and offers her and her people the gospel. And what is the gospel? It is Jesus himself. And he offers that to her at that well. Jesus goes to Samaria. The second going of our text is that the woman goes to her city. That's what happens next. Verse 28, after her dialogue with Jesus, we read this in verse 28, then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She goes to the city. Now, as I've noted in this text, when it's usually preached, a lot of preachers make a big deal about this woman's background, her bad reputation, that she's scandalized, and usually they make that argument on two grounds. There's two evidences offered. The one evidence is that of of her background, the the marriages that are brought up, right? She's had five husbands, the person she's living with is not her husband, and so the, the conclusion is that she is a woman of bad reputation. The other prong of evidence about this, about her past, her scandalous past, is where this is occurring, when it's occurring. That the fact that this woman is coming to the well in the middle of the day and coming alone. Usually, women went and drew water in the morning when it was cool, and they would do it together. It was a social activity. So her doing this alone in the middle of a day, as the conclusion goes, the argument goes, presumably is because other women don't want to associate with her because she has such a bad reputation. Now, that all may be true, and I've actually preached that myself in in my past, so uh, I'm a little more skeptical about all of that, about some of the conclusions about her, but let's say for the sake of argument, it is true. That she has a scandalous, uh, a scandalous past. That people in her community have ostracized her and treat her like a pariah. Well, if that's all true, then it makes it even more amazing that she goes back to these people who have treated her this way, marginalized her in this way, and she goes back to them and she shares the gospel with them. Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. And she leaves without hesitation. She leaves in great haste to go there, right? She leaves her water jar behind, and you can almost see the image of her dropping that very precious thing, right? The whole reason she's there is to get precious water, and she drops it, and it's bouncing there in the dust, and she's gone. She's going to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's what she does. She gets there, and she preaches about Jesus, verses 28 and 29. She said to the people, 
Come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? That's what she does. And assuming she is this ostracized person, she goes to these people who have ostracized her and she offers them the gospel. Come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? Now, some people interpret her words as words of doubt, right? That she's not really sure that he's the Messiah when she says that he cannot be the Messiah, can he? That she phrases it in that way. But that would be wrong to take it that way. She doesn't have doubt. She's trying to persuade people about the truth of who Jesus is. In the New English Translation Bible, the footnote to this text, it says, this should not be taken as an indication that the woman did not believe. It may well be an example of reverse psychology designed to gain a hearing for her testimony among those whose doubts about her background would obviate her claims. She's trying to persuade people. Ed Klink, in his commentary, writes this, The Samaritan woman carefully poses an exhortative rhetorical question to her own people. This was no ploy, however, but the question everyone needed to answer for themselves. She is effectively communicating the gospel in a way that it might be received in her community, in her cultural context. We would all benefit from learning how to do that ourselves. Persuasively presenting Jesus and his gospel. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? Jesus goes to Samaria. She goes back to her city, to her people, sharing who Jesus is, doing what disciples are supposed to do. You could argue that she's the first foreign missionary in the New Testament. She is, really, right? She goes to Samaria preaching the gospel. And she uses that pattern of discipleship that we saw earlier in John, John chapter 1, right? What does Andrew do after learning about Jesus? What does he do? He goes. He goes where? To Peter and shares the gospel with him. Same way, Philip, after learning about Jesus, immediately goes where? He goes to Nathanael and shares the gospel with him. And here is the Samaritan woman who meets Jesus, understands who he is, and what does she do after immediately learning about him? She immediately goes to her city and she shares the gospel with her people. The second going of our text is when the woman goes to her city, offers Jesus as bridegroom and Messiah to her people. Jesus goes to Samaria, the woman goes to her city, and then third and finally this morning, the Samaritans go to Jesus. The Samaritans go to Jesus. They hear the woman's testimony, and what do they do? The Samaritans decide to investigate for themselves. Verse 30, they left the city and were on their way to Him. They go to Him, to Jesus. And they find Jesus, and they ask him to stay with them, and he agrees to do that, and he teaches them about himself. And then we, hear, we read in verse 41, and many more believed because of his word. Many more came to faith. And then, interesting, they go back to the woman, and they say this thing, this thing that every preacher wants to hear from the people to whom that preacher ministers. They say something to every parent longs to hear their children say to them. They go back to the woman. This is what they say to her. Verse 42, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. 
We've heard for ourselves. This is now true for us. Every preacher, every parent wants to hear that. Some people take those words as kind of discounting the woman's efficacy of her ministry, but it's not. It's exactly what is supposed to happen to what everybody who preaches the gospel wants to happen, that those to whom that gospel is shared, that it becomes something for themselves, that they own, that we know, that I know, that Jesus is truly the Savior of the world. And so the Samaritans, they accept Jesus' proposal. They accept the marriage proposal. They come into covenant fidelity. They accept Jesus as their Savior. And finally, after a long, checkered history, they find love in the right place with a good husband. That's what this Scripture is about. So what does that mean for us? Well, I think I could put it very simply. It's kind of corny, but it's true. The church grows when we go. The church grows when we go. Last week, I talked about the great compassion, about this idea that Jesus gives us that we need to see suffering We need to have compassion when we see suffering, and then we need to do something about it and respond to it, that part of the calling of the church is this great compassion, this ministry of mercy. And then this morning we see the other half, the other hand, the other eye, the balancing of that gospel, the great commission itself. And what is the great commission? What is the calling and command of the great commission? Go! Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This text is a missional text. It's a calling for the church to go. It's about discipleship. And Jesus explicitly tells us that, right? The disciples come back to him. They talk about food for a little bit, right? And Jesus says, you're not getting this. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Do you not say four months from more, then comes the harvest? But I tell you, look around you. Think about that moment. Look around you, disciples, and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. Look around you. And I like to think that maybe at that moment, that's when the Samaritans were coming up. And, and, and coming to this place, right? They were seeing the hordes of Samaritans coming from the city that the woman had spoken to. Look around you. The reaper is already receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap. I sent you. Go. Reap. Jesus says, look around you. Go. The fields are ripe for harvesting. The church grows when we go. And so the imperative for us is simply this. We need to go. And I know that's hard because we live in a pluralistic society. We live in a divisive society. We live in a time of where secularism has grown and grown and grown to the point that to share the gospel is truly an offense. 
And I know many of you feel uncomfortable. And sometimes, you know, the way you know, certain parts of the church are depicted, I'm not saying it's unfair, uh, but, you know, it's people get an idea in our world that that's what all the church is about. That's what all church-going people are like. And so you hold back. It's a lot easier to do the great compassion, right? Because people accept that, taking care of the poor, feeding the hungry. Everyone finds that acceptable. But saying to someone, he cannot be the Messiah, can he? That's harder for us. But Jesus says go. And we need to find ways of going. Of sharing Christ. Yeah, it's not going to be door-to-door evangelism. It's not going to be handling out you know, Bible tracts with hellfire on it. That's not going to be the way we're going to do this. But we need to do it. Just like this woman, we need to find the way to be persuasive in our cultural context in which we feel ostracized for our faith. Maybe it's through how we live our lives. Maybe it's through inviting someone, come and see He cannot be the Messiah, can he? Come. Last week I shared with you Paul Borthwick's book, The Great Commission, The Great Compassion, and I gave you some ideas. I sent out that list. I'll send that out again this coming week. It has ideas for this. Simple ideas. Hey, get to know your neighbors. There's an idea. That's not offensive. He gives an idea. Start or join a book club. Sooner or later, something in the thematic Uh, you know, panoply of all the stuff in literature, you're going to come across an opportunity to talk about faith. Invite a friend to participate in one of the social outreaches of the church, something they would not find offensive, feeding the poor or sick, taking care of the sick or the hungry. Again, I'll send out that list. But this is the real key. This is the real key, the bottom line. You will only be willing to go if the gospel has first impacted you. Right? It has to mean something to you. You have to have a commitment to Christ. Something has to have changed in your life. You're not going to be willing to go unless you've committed your life to Christ. You need to be like that woman, right? What happened to her? She dropped that water pot in that moment. Prior to that, that was the most important thing she was doing with her life, was going to get water at that well. And she left it behind. Because something had changed in her life. She had met Christ, and something was different about her, and the most important thing she had to do was to go back and to tell other people about it. You will never share Christ unless you are changed by Christ. Unless it means something to you. People are committed to many things. They're committed to money, they're committed to their jobs, they're committed to entertainment, they're committed to their politics. But are we committed to Christ? I would love to get an email once in a while that says to me, Pastor, I want more Jesus. I get a lot of emails that say a lot of things. And people are very passionate about what they're saying. I would like to get one of those emails. Tomorrow you'll probably all send me all your emails. <laughs> because unless it means something to you in your heart, in your life, you will not go and share it. It'll have no imperative for you. If it doesn't matter to you, it's like preaching. If it doesn't matter to me, it's not going to matter to you. If I don't feel it, you're not going to feel it. If it's not real in here, I can't preach it real to you. 
that woman's life changed. And she shared the good news of Jesus Christ. And if you haven't committed yourself, if you haven't dropped that water pot in your life, drop it now. Commit to Jesus. Because look around you. The fields are ripe for harvesting. And Jesus says, I sent you to reap. Us. So let's go, people. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, help us to desire and thirst for living water. Let us hunger and thirst for righteousness. Let us be so in love with Christ that we can't help but desire to find persuasive, culturally sensitive ways to share Him with other people out of compassion, out of a belief that the best thing in the world is knowing Christ, and I want others to know that too. Change us, Lord. Mold us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you join